This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gemma Blythe, our mutual friend, by Charles Dickens. Book Three, Chapter Eleven. In the Dark. There was no sleep for Bradley Edstone on that night when Eugene Rayburn turned so easily in his bed. There was no sleep for little Miss Beecher. Bradley consumed the lonely hours and consumed himself in haunting the spot where his careless rival lay a dreaming. Little Miss Beecher wore them away in listening for the return home of the master of her heart and in sorrowfully presaging that much was amiss with him. Yet more was amiss with him than Miss Beecher's simply arranged little workbox of thoughts, fitted with no gloomy and dark recesses, could hold. For the state of the man was murderous. The state of the man was murderous, and he knew it. More, he irritated it with a kind of perverse pleasure akin to that which a sick man sometimes has in irritating a wound upon his body, tied up all day, with his disciplined show upon him, subdued to the performance of his routine of educational tricks, encircled by a gabbling crowd. He broke loose at night like an ill-tamed wild animal. Under his daily restraint it was his compensation, not his trouble, to give a glance towards his state at night, and to the freedom of its being indulged. If great criminals told the truth, which, being great criminals, they do not, they would very rarely tell of their struggles against the crime. Their struggles are towards it. They buffet with opposing waves to gain the bloody shore, not to recede from it. This man perfectly comprehended that he hated his rival with his strongest and worst forces, and that if he tracked him to Lizzie Exham, his so doing would never serve himself with her or serve her. All his pains were taken to the end that he might incense himself with the sight of the detested figure in her company and favor, in her place of concealment, and he knew as well what act of his would follow if he did, as he knew that his mother had borne him granted that he may not have held it necessary to make express mention to himself of the one familiar truth any more than of the other. He knew equally well that he fed his wrath and hatred, and that he accumulated provocation and self-justification by being made the nightly sport of the reckless and insolent Eugene. Knowing all this, and still always going on with infinite endurance, pains, and perseverance, could his dark soul doubt whither he went? Baffled, exasperated, and weary, he lingered opposite the temple gate when it closed on Rayburn and Lightwood, debating with himself, should he go home for that time, or should he watch longer, possessed in his jealousy by the fixed idea that Rayburn was in the secret. If it were not altogether of his contriving, Bradley was as confident of getting the better of him at last by sullenly sticking to him as he would have been, and often had been, of mastering any piece of study in the way of his vocation, by the like slow, persistent process, a man of rapid passions and sluggish intelligence. It had served him often, and should serve him again. The suspicion grasped him as he rested in a doorway, with his eyes upon the temple gate, that perhaps she was even concealed in that set of chambers. It would furnish another reason for Rayburn's purposeless walks, and it might be. He thought of it, and thought of it, until he resolved to steal up the stairs, if the gatekeeper would let him through, and listen, 
so the haggard head suspended in the air flitted across the road like the spectre of one of the many heads erst hoisted upon neighboring temple bar and stopped before the watchman the watchman looked at it and asked who for mr raeburn it's very late he came back with mr lightwood i know near upon two hours ago but if he has gone to bed i'll put a paper in his letter-box i am expected the watchman said no more but opened the gate though rather doubtfully seeing however that the visitor went straight and fast in the right direction he seemed satisfied the haggard head floated up the dark staircase and softly descended nearer to the floor outside the outer door of the chambers the doors of the rooms within appearing to be standing open there were rays of candlelight from one of them and there was the sound of a footstep going about there were two voices the words they uttered were not distinguishable but they were both the voices of men in a few moments the voices were silent and there was no sound of footstep and the inner light went out if lightwood could have seen the face which kept him awake staring and listening in the darkness outside the door as he spoke of it he might have been less disposed to sleep through the remainder of the night not there said bradley but she might have been the head arose to its former height from the ground floated down the staircase again and passed on to the gate a man was standing there in barley with the watchman oh said the watchman here he is perceiving himself to be the antecedent bradley looked from the watchman to the man this man is leaving a letter for mr lightwood the watchman explained showing it in his hand and i was mentioning that a person had just gone up to mr lightwood's chambers it might be the same business perhaps no said bradley glancing at the man who was a stranger to him no the man assented in a surly way my letter it's wrote by my daughter but it's mine it's about my business and my business ain't nobody else's business as bradley passed out at the gate with an undecided foot he heard it shut behind him and heard the footstep of the man coming after him excuse me said the man who appeared to have been drinking and rather stumbled at him and touched him to attract his attention but might you be acquainted with the t'other governor with whom asked bradley with returned the man pointing backward over his right shoulder with his right thumb the t'other governor i don't know what you mean why look here hooking his proposition on his left hand fingers with the forefinger of his right there's two governors ain't there one and one two lawyer lightwood my first finger he's one ain't he well might you be acquainted with my middle finger the t'other i know quite as much of him said bradley with a frown and a distant look before him as i want to know hurrah cried the man hurrah t'other t'other governor hurrah t'otherest governor i am of your way of thinking don't make such a noise at this dead hour of the night what are you talking about look here t'otherest governor replied the man becoming hoarsely confidential the t'other governor he's always joked his jokes agin me owing as i believe to my being a honest man as gets my living by the sweat of my brow which he ain't and he don't what is that to me t'otherest governor returned the man in a tone of injured innocence if you don't care to hear no more don't hear no more you begun it you said and likewise showed pretty plain 
as you weren't by no means friendly to him. But I don't seek to forth my company, nor yet my opinions on no man. I am a honest man, that's what I am. Put me in the dark anywhere, I don't care where, and I says, My lord, I am a honest man. Put me in the witness-box anywhere, I don't care where, and I says the same to his lordship, and I kisses the book. I don't kiss my coat-cuff, I kisses the book. It was not so much in deference to these strong testimonials to character, as in his restless casting about for any way or help towards the discovery on which he was concentrated, that Bradley Headstone replied, You needn't take offence. I didn't mean to stop you. You were too loud in the open street. That was all. Tetherest Governor, replied Mr. Ryderhood, mollified and mysterious, I know what it is to be loud, and I know what it is to be soft. Naturally, I do. It would be a wonder if I did not, being by the Christian name of Roger, which took it after my own father, which took it from his own father, through which of our family first took it natural, I would not in any ways mislead you by undertaking to say, and wishing that your health may be better than your looks, which your outside must be bad indeed, if it's on the footing of your out. Startled by the implication that his face revealed too much of his mind, Ranley made his effort to clear his brow. It might be worth knowing what this strange man's business was with Lightwood or Rayburn, or both, at such an unseasonable hour. He set himself to find out, for the man might prove to be a messenger between those two. You call it the temple late, he remarked, with a lumbering show of ease. Wish I may die, cried Mr. Riderhood, with a hoarse laugh. If I weren't a-going to say the self-same words to you, t'otherest governor. It chanced so with me, said Bradley, looking disconcertedly about him. And it chanced so with me, said Riderhood. But I don't mind telling you how. Why should I mind telling you? I'm a deputy lock-keeper up the river, and I was off duty yesterday, and I shall be on to-morrow. Yes, yes, and I come to London to look after my private affairs. My private affairs is to get appointed to the lock as regular keeper at first hand, and to have the law of the busted blow-bridge steamer which drowned it of me. I ain't a-going to be drowned and not paid for it. Tetherest governor, replied Mr. Riderhood, mollified and mysterious. I know what it is to be loud, and I know what it is to be soft. Naturally, I do. It would be a wonder if I did not, being by the Christian name of Roger, which took it after my own father, which took it from his own father, though which of our family first took it natural, I will not in any ways mislead you by undertaking to say, and wishing that your health may be better than your looks, which your inside must be bad indeed, if it's on the footing of your out. Startled by the implication that his face revealed too much of his mind, Bradley made an effort to clear his brow. It might be worth knowing what this strange man's business was with Lightwood or Rayburn, or both, at such an unseasonable hour. He set himself to find out, for the man might prove to be a messenger between those two. You call it the temple late, he remarked, with a lumbering show of ease. Wish I may die, cried Mr. Riderhood, with a hoarse laugh, if I weren't a-going to say the self-same words to you, t'otherest governor. It chanced so with me, said Bradley, looking disconcertedly about him, and it chanced so with me, said Riderhood, but I don't mind telling you how. Why should I mind telling you? I'm a deputy lock-keeper 
up the river, and I was off duty yesterday, and I shall be on tomorrow. Yes, yes, and I come to London to look after my private affairs. My private affairs is to get appointed to the lock as regular keeper at first hand, and to have the law of the busted blow bridge steamer which drowned of me. I ain't a going to be drowned and not paid for it. Bradley looked at him as though he were claiming to be a ghost. The steamer, said Mr. Ryder obstinately, run me down and drowned it of me. Interference on the part of other parties brought me round, but I never asked them to bring me round, nor yet the steamer never asked them to it. I mean to be paid with a life as the steamer took. Was that your business at Mr. Lightwood's chambers in the middle of the night? asked Bradley, eyeing him with distrust. That, and to get a writing to be first-hand lock-keeper, a recommendation in writing being looked for, who else ought to give it to me? As I says in the letter in my daughter's hand, with my mark put to it to make it good in law, who but you, lawyer Lightwood, ought to hand over this here certificate, and who but you ought to go in for damages on my account to gin the steamer, for, as I says under my mark, I have had trouble enough along of you and your friend, if you, lawyer Lightwood, had backed me good and true, and if the other governor had took me down correct, I says under my mark, I should have been worth money at the present time. Instead of having a barge load of bad names chucked at me, and being forced to eat my words, which is an unsatisfying sort of food, whatever man's appetite, and when you mention the middle of the night, otherest governor, growled Mr. Riderhood, winding up his monotonous summary of his wrongs. Throw your eye on this here bundle under my arm, and bear in mind that I'm a-walking back to my lock, and that the temple laid upon my line of road. Bradley Headstone's face had changed during this latter recital, and he had observed the speaker with a more sustained attention. Do you know, said he, after a pause, during which they walked on side by side, that I believe I could tell you your name if I tried. Prove your opinion, was the answer, accompanied with a stop and a stare. Try. Your name is Riderhood. I'm blessed if it ain't, returned that gentleman, but I don't know yourn. That's quite another thing, said Bradley. I never supposed you did. As Bradley walked on meditating, the rogue walked on at his side, muttering. The pulpit of the muttering was that rogue Riderhood, by George, seemed to be made public property on now and that every man seemed to think himself free to handle his name as if it was a street-pump. The porpit of the meditating was, Here is an instrument. Can I use it? They had walked along the strand and into Pall Mall, and had turned uphill towards Hyde Park Corner. Bradley Headstone, waiting on the pace and lead of Riderhood, and leaving him to indicate the course. So slow were the schoolmaster's thoughts, and so indistinct his purposes when they were but tributary to the one absorbing purpose, or rather when, like dark trees under a stormy sky, they only lined the long vista at the end of which he saw those two figures, of Rayburn and Lizzie, on which his eyes were fixed, that at least a good half-mile was traversed before he spoke again. Even then it was only to ask, where is your lock? Twenty mile and odd. Call it five and twenty mile and odd. If you like, upstream, was the sullen reply. How is it called? Flashwater Ware Mill Lock. Suppose I was to offer you five shillings. What then? Why, then I'd take it, said Mr. Riderhood. 
the schoolmaster put his hand in his pocket and produced two half-crowns and placed them in mr riderhood's palm who stopped at a convenient doorstep to ring them both before acknowledging their receipt there's one thing about you t'other's governor said riderhood faring on again as looks well and goes for you're a ready money man now when he had carefully pocketed the coins on that side of himself which was furthest from his new friend what's this for for you why of course i knew that said riderhood and arguing something that was self-evident of course i knew very well as no man in his right senses would suppose as anything would make me give it up again when i'd once got it but what do you want for it i don't know that i want anything for it or if i do want anything for it i don't know what it is bradley gave this answer in a stolid vacant and self-communing manner which mr ryder had found very extraordinary you have no good will towards this raven said bradley coming to the name in a reluctant and forced way as if he were dragged to it no neither have i ryder nodded and asked is it for that it's as much for that as anything else it's something to be agreed with on a subject that occupies so much of one's thoughts it don't agree with you returned mr riderhood bluntly no it don't tell her as governor and it's no use a lookin as if you wanted to make out that it did i tell you it rankles in you it rankles in you rusts in you and poisons you say that it does so returned bradley with quivering lips is there no cause for it cause enough i'll bet a pound cried mr riderhood haven't you yourself declared that the fellow has heaped provocations insult and affronts on you or something to that effect he has done the same by me he has made of venomous insults and affronts from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot are you so hopeful or so stupid as not to know that he and the other will treat your application with contempt and light their cigars with it i shouldn't wonder if they did by george said riderhood turning angry if they did they will let me ask you a question i know something more than your name about you i knew something about gaffer hexam when did you last set eyes upon his daughter when did i last set eyes upon his daughter t'otherest governor repeated mr riderhood growing intentionally slower of comprehension as the other quickened in his speech yes not to speak to her to see her anywhere the rogue had got the clue he wanted though he held it with a clumsy hand looking perplexedly at the passionate face as if he were trying to work out a sum in his mind he slowly answered i ain't set eyes upon her never once not since the day of gaffer's death you know her well by sight i should think i did no one better and you know him as well who's him asked riderhood taking off his hat and rubbing his forehead as he directed a dull look at his questioner curse the name is it so agreeable to you that you want to hear it again oh him said riderhood who had craftily worked the schoolmaster into this corner that he might again take note of his face under its evil possession i'd know him among a thousand did you bradley tried to ask it quietly but do what you might with his voice he could not subdue his face did you ever see them together the rogue had got the clue in both hands now i see em together t'otherest governor on the very day when gaffer was towed ashore
Bradley could have hidden a reserved piece of information from the sharp eyes of a whole inquisitive class, but he could not veil from the eyes of the ignorant Riderhood the withheld question next to his breast. "'You shall put it plain if you want it answered,' thought the rogue, doggedly. "'I ain't a-going of volunteering.' "'Well, was he insolent to her, too?' asked Bradley after a struggle. "'Or did he make a show of being kind to her?' "'He made a show of being most uncommon kind to her,' said Riderhood. "'By George, now I—' "'His flying off at a tangent was indisputably natural. "'Bradley looked at him for the reason. "'Now I think of it,' said Mr. Riderhood evasively, "'for he was substituting those words for, "'Now I see you so jealous,' which was the phrase really in his mind. "'Perhaps he went and took me down wrong.' a purpose on account of being sweet upon her the baseness of confirming him in this suspicion or pretence of one for he could not have really entertained it was a line's breadth beyond the mark the schoolmaster had reached the baseness of communing and intriguing with the fellow who would have set that stain upon her and upon her brother too was attained the line's breadth further lay beyond he made no reply but walked on with a lowering face. What he might gain by this acquaintance he could not work out in his slow and cumbrous thoughts. The man had an injury against the object of his hatred, and that was something, though it was less than he supposed, for there dwelt in the man no such deadly rage and resentment as burned in his own breast. The man knew her, and might by a fortunate chance see her, or hear of her. That was something, as enlisting one pair of eyes and ears the more. The man was a bad man, and willing enough to be in his pay. That was something, for his own state and purpose were as bad as bad could be, and he seemed to derive a vague support from the possession of a congenial instrument, though it might never be used. Suddenly he stood still and asked Riderhood point-blank if he knew where she was. Clearly he did not know. He asked Riderhood if he would be willing in case any intelligence of her, or of Rayburn as seeking her or associating with her, should fall in his way, to communicate it, if it were paid for. He would be very willing indeed. He was again em both, he said with an oath, and for why. Cause they had both stood betwixt him and his getting his living by the sweat of his brow. It would not be long then, said Bradley Edstone, after some more discourse to this effect before we see one another again here is the country road and here is the day both have come upon me by surprise but t'otherest governor urged mr riderhood i don't know where to find you it is of no consequence i know where to find you and i'll come to your lock but t'otherest governor urged mr riderhood again no luck never come yet of a dry acquaintance let's wet it in a mouthful of rum and milk t'otherest governor. Bradley, assenting, went with him into an early public house, haunted by unsavory smells of musty hay and stale straw, where returning carts, farmers' men, gaunt dogs, fowls of a beery breed, and certain human night-birds fluttering home to roost, were solacing themselves after their several manners, and were not one of the night-birds hovering about the sloppy bar, failed to discern at a glance in the passion-wasted night-bird with respectable feathers, the worst night-bird of all. 
an inspiration of affection for a half-drunken carter going his way, led to Mr. Riderhood's being elevated on a high heap of baskets on a wagon, and pursuing his journey recumbent on his back, with his head on his bundle. Bradley then turned to retrace his steps, and by and by, struck off through little traversed ways, and by and by, reached school and home. Up came the sun to find him washed and brushed, methodically dressed in decent black coat and waistcoat, decent formal black tie and pepper-and-salt pantaloons, with his decent silver watch in its pocket and its decent air-guard round his neck, a scholastic huntsman glad for the field, with his fresh pack yelping and barking around him, yet more really bewitched than the miserable creatures of the much-lamented times, who accused themselves of impossibilities under a contagion of horror and the strongly suggestive influences of torture. He had been ridden hard by evil spirits in the night that was newly gone. He had been spurred and whipped and heavily sweated. If a record of the sport had usurped the places of the peaceful texts from Scripture on the wall, the most advanced of the scholars might have taken fright and run away from the master. End of chapter 11